William B. Irvine is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, USA. He's the author of eight books that have been translated into more than 20 languages. His Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, played a key role in the Stoic Renaissance that has taken place in recent years. His subsequent Stoic Challenge, A Philosopher's Guide to Becoming Tougher, Calmer, and More Resilient, provides a strategy for dealing, in proper Stoic manner, with the setbacks we experience in daily living. He is currently at work on a book about thinking critically, but with an open mind, in the age of the internet. William Irvine, welcome to The Creative Process. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So you're going to read for us to start off from the Stoic Challenge, which really outlines ways we can overcome some of life setbacks. Yeah, I'm going to read from chapter five, the title of which is You Are of Two Minds. And this sort of sets the background for the rest of the book. You are a divided being in the sense of having both a mind and a body. Furthermore, your mind itself is divided into a conscious and subconscious component. Because of the front and center nature of your conscious mind, you are thoroughly familiar with its operations. The same cannot be said, though, of your subconscious mind. To gain evidence of your subconscious mind's existence, along with insight into its operations, perform the Zazen meditation. Find a quiet place where you can sit, or better still, lie down for five minutes. During that time, close your eyes and think of nothing. Try, that is, to stop thinking. You will find this exceedingly difficult to do. Ideas will keep popping into your conscious mind, which is to say that your subconscious mind will keep planting them there. Whereas your conscious mind is conspicuously rational, your subconscious mind operates in a semi-rational manner. It is capable of coming up with crazy ideas. Consider your dreams. It is also susceptible to a variety of unsavory influences. When, for example, you buy something you don't need, it's likely because an advertiser successfully planted an idea in your subconscious mind, which in turn persuaded your conscious mind to make the purchase. You might think that your conscious mind, thanks to its rational nature, would be in charge, but this is not the case. To the contrary, your conscious mind appears to be perfectly willing to play the role of lackey to your subconscious mind. For example, Instead of using its reasoning ability to figure out a way to reduce your burdensome mortgage payments, your conscious mind might spend its time coming up with a clever way to finance the extravagant car that your subconscious mind is convinced that you can't live without. But what is the source of your subconscious mind's power? Stated simply, it doesn't fight fair. If your conscious mind comes up with a sensible reason to dismiss its suggestions, your subconscious mind will simply suggest them again and again and again. This is why you might find yourself eating a second piece of cake after dinner when, truth be told, you didn't even need the first piece. It's also why, after being talked into having one beer, you might find yourself thirsty for another. The alcohol in the first will affect your brain in a way that diminishes your conscious mind's ability to withstand the nagging of your subconscious mind. As a result, you will find yourself wanting just one more. Alternatively, your subconscious mind will sneakily wait until you have gone to bed to present you with an idea. You might put the idea out of your conscious mind just so you can sleep, only to have it pop back in. As a result, by the time the sun rises, your sleep-deprived conscious mind might have capitulated. It will do whatever your subconscious mind wants just to shut it up. And that's just speaking of the two minds. The body hasn't really even come into that. You know, your book is full of excellent strategies, bringing in different threads of thoughts from the Stoics. And they aren't always completely in agreement, but the general thrust is it's moving towards the light and an acceptance that there will be suffering, but moments of joy. How did you personally come to have greater harmony between your conscious and unconscious mind? Step one is to be aware of their existence. And I did. I actually tried the Zen meditation. I did personally what I'm advising readers to do. Because the first thing is to understand, we think we're in control because the part we're aware of is being cleverly manipulated by the parts that we aren't aware of. 
So we think we're in control. Some of the time we are in control. Much of the time we are simply not in control. It's an illusion. And what is controlling us are these very primitive components of our brain. And we can get into medical terminology here, but just call them your heart and your gut. These evolved early on, your heart to have emotions, your gut to have these reflexive responses, including anger, for instance. So you've probably been sitting there and somebody said something and you find yourself intensely angry maybe engaged in some kind of outburst. Well, you just slid back a few hundred thousand years in your evolution because that's a response that would have been very important back then. But here it is front and center in your modern mind. And of course, we live in a radically different world than our ancestors did. So that was another thing, but that was a project that preceded this. And that's just this whole notion of how our evolutionary past has had a profound influence on who we are, on what we think, on what we care about, on what feels good to us. You go through the list. So we've got a built-in incentive system. And unfortunately, it kept us alive on the savannas of Africa, but it can have tragic consequences in the modern world. Yeah, our brain doesn't, and not even to speak about technology and how that's accelerating beyond the evolution of our brains. But yes, it's going a little bit back into the left and right hemisphere and how, which I don't really fully understand, but as I understand, it operates on every second of our life. It's really complicated. And I agree with you. I don't understand it either, but it's not so much left and right. And that's what people used to talk about. It's the deep brain, your brain stem. That's what I would call the reptile brain. On top of that is the, the midbrain portion. And that's where you're going to get your emotions from. It's sometimes referred to as the mammalian brain. And then on top of that, a thin layer on top of that, is the prefrontal cortex. And that's what you would call the rational component of your brain. The interesting thing about the brain is when it got a new component, it didn't unplug the old component and stick the new component in. It just kept both components and put one on top of the other. So your ancestors, if you trace your ancestry way back, you're going to hit reptiles. Ancestors who are literally reptiles were not just reptilian in their behavior, but they were actual reptiles and they had the brainstem component. And then when mammals evolved, this whole notion of emotional attachments to things, there were a variety of reasons for that. And it didn't sort of say, well, let's get rid of the brainstem. Uh, let's put in this other component. It said, oh, I know we can just stack it on top of the brainstem. And then you had two components, one this reflexive component and one this emotional component. And then 200,000 years ago, I'm playing fast and loose with numbers here. We had finally the prefrontal cortex come in where you had the ability to do what we would call rational thinking. So you've got this rational thought process that's subtly influenced by these archaic brain processes. They're still with us, still active, and you become aware of them. I, you know, I told you if somebody threatens you, you feel a burst of adrenaline. Well, there you are back to reptilian brain. If you're watching a movie and it's a sad movie and you get the sad part of the movie and you find yourself tearing up, you know, it's just a movie. It's just made up. But guess what? The mammalian portion of your brain has been activated. If you fall in love, hey, that's mammalian component taken over the day. And you can end up doing some very foolish things before the rational component again takes over. Yes. And so the Stoic Challenge is a companion book where you analyze, you know, we all want to live the good life. T tell mm -hmm. us about the first volume and how you felt that there were some things that had not been addressed in that. Yes. And I'll actually back up two books before that, because in the early 2000s, I wrote a book called On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. And in that, I explored evolutionary past and the way it's affected our current mind state and how we operate. In the process of doing that, I stumbled across Stoic philosophy and thought it was just wonderful stuff. So I had the exact wrong idea of what it was. Most people do, because if they look it up in the dictionary, Stoic is this glum individual who simply takes suppresses all emotions, but that isn't what the Stoics were at all. And they came up with these really brilliant psychological strategies for retaining our equanimity in the face of life's setbacks, life's challenges, life's tests. And they're brilliant strategies. They're easy test drives. See, Stoicism has a very low price of admission. If you tell me you want to be a Zen Buddhist, I will say, well, it's probably a decade long program, going to require a lot of meditation, a lot of other things 
things over the course of a three-day weekend. You can learn what you need. You can test drive it. You can find out what it is and you can find out what these strategies are and you can try them and see if they make a difference in your life. Then after that, I did actually two other books. One was on insults, and it has an extensive section on stoic response to insults, because thanks to the internet, insults have become a much bigger deal than they were when I wrote the book on insults and the way we respond to them. And then I thought that another uh, applied stoic book that was focused just on life setbacks. It's in the course of a day, you probably have lots of little setbacks. And in the course of lifetime, you have big setbacks. Setbacks. And the Stoics had this insight that what really makes setbacks harm us is not the setback itself, but our response to the setback. And so they came up with strategies that would lessen the harm done us by setbacks. And that is we simply don't allow the emotional component to enter the picture. And they had psychological strategies. It isn't religion, it's psychology. They were the supreme psychologists of their time and some of their psychological discoveries were rediscovered only by people like Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky late in the 20th century. So they sat dormant, but they're brilliant, brilliant strategies. Yes, but maybe not everyone is adept at taking on the strategies in a weekend. I still think it takes work. It depends on how much personal work you have to do. I think that it's very difficult in the moment to do this five-second rule, as you say, to halt those instincts. I agree with that assessment. So there's a difference between taking a car on a test drive and then really getting to know the car and feel comfortable with the car and know where all the switches are and where all the gadgets are. So you can consider if you have a musical background at all, you know that you have to practice. We talk about stoic practice, but it's the same thing. And that means you have to make a point of using the strategies because in the normal course of things, they're just going to fall by the wayside. And pretty soon you realize, whoa, the benefits they were giving me are no longer present. So I find myself failing to do some of the strategies and shame on me because I wrote a book on it. But, you know, life gets complicated. And some of them I do now habitually, like I describe one called negative visualization, in which you imagine not having something you take utterly for granted. And I do that habitually, but there are others. For instance, there's the bedtime meditation. Problem is I fall asleep really quickly. My wife is always amazed by how quick I go. So when I should be doing the bedtime meditation, unfortunately, I often fall asleep before making any progress at all. Bedtime meditation, where you simply revisit your day, you think about what did you do during the day that the ancient Stoics would have been proud of, and what did you do that they would have disapproved of. And it's self-graded test. You figure out how you did. Sometimes you get to pat yourself on the back, and sometimes you got to think, yeah, got to work harder. And you speak about the ancient Stoics. I know that we don't know exactly all the Greek Stoics because some of that has been lost, but can you just outline the different approaches? Yeah, Stoicism started in 300 BC in Athens. Zeno of Citium was the first Stoic. He created it. He put together components of some other then existing schools of philosophy and started his own school. But what we know primarily is the Roman Stoics. So this would be in the first century BC and the first century AD in Rome. And the big names, the four big names are Marcus Aurelius, who is also an emperor, Seneca, who is also a playwright, and the first century equivalent of a billionaire, an interestingly complex guy, Epictetus, who was a successful head of school of philosophy. Fourth name, less known, but a very important Roman Stoic is Musonius Rufus, who is actually the teacher of Epictetus. And the interesting thing is all four of them, you can pick up and start reading them and you will very quickly sort of say, oh, I see what they're doing and I see why it's relevant to my life and I see how it can be useful to my life. There's so much philosophy that that simply won't be true of. Certainly stuff that's being written in universities today is highly technical. But from their point of view, they were out to reach a wide audience and help people live better lives, help people flourish as human beings. So 
I regard myself as simply the messenger. There have been occasions when I fiddled a little bit with the strategies they're using because I think there may be some ways they can be changed and made more effective. But other than that, I'm just the messenger. And my goal was to tell other people, once I realized the impact it was having in my life, share it with other people and say, you know, you got to give this a try because it's got a low price of admission, you know, a three-day weekend. And by the end of that, you will either go away saying, nah, doesn't work for me. Or you'll go away saying, wow, that really is manageable and useful. And it can, it has the power to transform my life. And it's amazing the universality of it because they started in Athens and take it up in Rome and now all over the world. And your own upbringing, you grew up in Montana. I also understand other people who have taken up to this in this stoic renaissance, a lot of people in the tech industry. So it's a wonderfully adaptable. But tell us about your upbringing a little bit and how that might have prepared you for these philosophical and ethical questions. Yeah. So I grew up in little towns, typically mining towns. My father was a construction engineer for a mining company. Started school in a two-room schoolhouse in Tocopilla, Chile. And my house was literally right across the street from the Pacific Ocean. So I would have been a six-year-old. I just assumed, well, everybody kind of lives across the street from the Pacific Ocean. Only later did I realize, no, it was a very unusual childhood to have. Stoicism, I first encountered in college, except I didn't encounter it in a regular philosophy class. I encountered it in a logic class because the Stoics were the first developers. Well, they systematized what's called propositional logic. And that's the kind of logic that's used in computers, the logic of and, the logic of neither nor, the logic of if then. They, in the ancient world, they came along and said, hey, let's get on top of this. So it would be an extreme stretch, but you could say they invented computers, but it would be quite a stretch to say that. Now, that's when I encountered it, but not as a philosophy for living. It was just, hey, they were these ancient logicians. And it was only, like I said, in the mid-2000s that I became aware of their psychological advice, this whole other component of them. So that's the striking thing is you could have been a philosophy graduate, philosophy major in college, go to graduate school in philosophy and not be exposed to their philosophy of life, which is absolutely bizarre. But that just says something about the way philosophy is treated in universities, this extremely specialized technical discipline, which if normal people can understand it, well, then you didn't do it right because you're supposed to be very, very complex. So I think you can do both. I think there's all this technical stuff you can do, but I think one really wonderful thing to do, and certainly, you know, if you ask the Stoics, which is better, reaching a broad audience and helping them live a better life or getting a lot of publications in philosophy journals, they would have said, well, the first, of course, you want to help people. And I've come away with a conclusion that they're right and I'm joining them in that cause. And so, yeah, it's true. It's because how can you use it? Not just know the history and right. how that happened. You know, it really helps us address the big questions. A lot of us, and we have an environmental podcast, and we have a lot of students experiencing anxiety about climate change. And of course, the big thing that stoicism also helps us prepare is considering our own death. So how would you use stoicism to help mitigate that distress? I'm always on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm shocked by how much there is to worry about. There's always been stuff to worry about. But, you know, I look at what's happening to the environment, looking what's happening to society, what's happening politically. There's a lot to worry about. So what's the stoic advice? That stoic advice is called the dichotomy of control. First step is to say, you know what? There's things I can control and things I can't. I took the liberty of saying there's actually three different things. There's things you have complete control over. And one of them is your values. There's things you have no control over, like whether it rains or not. And there's things you have some but not complete control over, like whether you win the upcoming tennis match. There's things you can control over. You can control how hard you practice and what you do in your practice and the strategy you take into the game and the fact that you didn't party hard the night before the game. What can't you control? How your opponent plays and how he trained and all of those other things. So Stoics would say, just focus on the part you can control. Do your best. And you know what? Whatever happens after that, if you did what you could with what you had, where you were, you were a success. You were a success because there's nothing more you could have done. You're not to blame. 
So when it comes to anxiety over the ongoing events, the news items and so on, realize you have no control over a lot of them. So it's simply wasted effort on your part in order for you to concern yourself with them. You've got other things to think about. I mean, one of the things you have control over and you can work on this in practices is your own response to that news and what you do with that news. So I'm turning into an old guy now. I just turned 70 years old. And the amazing thing is, you know, it's like watching a disaster movie, but at reduced speed. And the really disturbing thing to me is that there's all of this stuff going on in society. So we have mass shootings in politics, in the environment. And then we had the pandemic on top of that. But just people ignore, ignore it. It's, they don't think about it. So the pandemic, we had a miracle happen. What did we get? We got a vaccine, an effective vaccine in remarkably short period of time. So did everybody celebrate? No, they said, I'm not going to take that vaccine. Why not? Well, you know, I got questions, but it's a miracle. You know, well, and when it comes to the environment too, I've now I feel intensely guilty just for using plastic bags. And yet you try to look around, think about, well, what are the alternatives? And of course, usually there are things I could do, but they wouldn't be as convenient. And that's terrible. That's a terrible way to think. But here you are, you're in this situation. So you have to do the best you can to flourish under difficult circumstances. And trust me that the people right now in uh, the Ukraine, they would love to be in your circumstances, whatever those circumstances are. And so count yourself lucky, you know? And in your situation, look for the bright spot in the dark sky. A question I have for you is, as I was reading your essays, I wondered, does having a practice to follow add more restrictions or freedoms to your life? And how does having either more or less freedom enhance your life and what you do? Well, stoicism, let's see, what does it try to restrict you from doing? Oh, well, I mean, it, here's some of the things it tries to restrict you from taking for granted the things in your life. So it says, you know, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. And it provides you with a strategy to avoid doing that. And that is a negative visualization where you imagine that those things are gone. It's also opens your life in the sense that once you do start appreciating things you've already got, you know, you don't need a whole bunch of other stuff. So what is freedom? You know, it's an interesting and complex concept. And I guess I'm becoming more aware of this. There's all sorts of things that I see the people around me wanting and all sorts of things that I probably should want myself, except that I just can't find it in me. You know, it's sort of like, I don't need that. I kind of am a happy camper as I am. And yeah, I know there's newer cars. There's all of this stuff going on. I don't need it. There's stuff. I could buy lots and lots of stuff. I don't need it. So it's a strange thing. So then what does that make me? I'm a free guy who is unencumbered to the extent that I used to be by these, these desires, these desires that are semi-rational desires. So I would call myself freer than ever. You know, the other thing about freedom is it's worthless unless you spend it. And how do you spend your freedom? You spend it in ways that's actually going to reduce your freedom in the future. So for instance, if you form a family, Okay, something you can choose to do. Thereafter, you just rule out a whole bunch of things. That is, if you take seriously the job of being parent, it rules out any number of other things. So you're closing doors, right? You're saying, I want to be a parent, and that closes a bunch of options in the future. But think about what the alternative would be, and that is where you never took a dramatic step because you always wanted your options open. I think you wouldn't have a very satisfying or meaningful life. Parenting simultaneously the hardest thing a human being can ever do if they do it right and the most rewarding thing a human being can ever do in large part because it's one of the best ways to get you outside yourself and you know we are all trapped with an ego thinking about only ourselves and that's just not a very good way to thrive but get outside yourself and then suddenly the world opens up in a wonderful way and one quick other comment is stoicism teaches you how to find life's delights how to find silver linings because they're all over the place it's just that people don't even imagine that they could possibly exist but they do exist and if you're looking for them, you will find them. And that'll take what could be an ordinary day and turn it into 
special kind of day. You mentioned at the beginning of your response about negative visualization. And that makes me think about what you were talking about, bedtime meditation, how you're supposed to reflect on what you did during the day. And if you did something that the Stoics would be proud of, you thought of how can you improve on it? So my question is, how do you detach this reflection from the sense of regrets? Yeah, regret is a really interesting emotion. So it is a negative emotion. It's an interesting one. Grief is an even more interesting one because grief is this complex stew of multiple negative emotions. So when somebody is grieving, part of what they're doing is they're regretting. Why are they grieving? Because they're regretting that when they still had something. So Seneca, in his letter to Marcia, this is a mother who three years after the death of her child is still in deep mourning over the death. And so he writes her a letter giving her advice. Each case is different, of course, but in such cases, one of the things that can be going on is the person is in grief because they finally realize that when the person was alive and part of their life, they didn't make the most of that, right? So if you're there for them and you're in daily contact and you are a good friend or good parent, it's hard. And Seneca says there will be this reflexive bad feeling initially, but you're going to go away saying, I couldn't control the child is taken from me. But when the child was with me, I did my best to make that just a wonderful relationship, both for me and for the child. So now that the child is gone, I at least don't have to have regrets. And Seneca also gives to Marcia this advice. She says, well, you loved your son, right? The son who passed away. You would want to abide by his wishes, wouldn't you, as a loving mother? If that's the case, then ask yourself, would he want you to spend the rest of your life deep in a state of grief. If he loved you, the answer is no, he wouldn't. What would he want you to do? He would want you to flourish to the extent possible, to put it past you and find new things that are going to give your life meaning and that are going to give your life joy, that are going to provide you with joy. So it's really interesting. It's a kind of a twist on psychological strategies that could be used. And earlier we talked about death for a second there. So let's circle back and say a little bit more about that because, well, number one is you're going to die. Okay. And I hope your listeners realize that. I hope I'm not like the guy who told them Santa Claus didn't exist. Whoops, I hope they realize that too, because I don't want to be the guy that told him that. So you're going to die. In fact, it's going to be in X number of days. Now, I can't tell you the value of X, but there is a number there and that's it. Now, some people say, what a terrible negative thought for you to have had that I'm going to die and there's X number of days left. And you can take that approach to it. But a stoic would say, no, if you want to have a full life, it's very important that you keep that in mind, that there are X number of days left, because if you don't, what are you going to do? You're going to waste those days. So I've talked about the Stoics, how they would respond to the notion of heaven that was infinite, where you lived forever. You never had to face death again. And my guess is people who ended up in heaven would be absolutely miserable. Everybody thinks, now that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be so happy. Nah, chances are you're going to be miserable. And there are at least two reasons for that. Number one is if you take your earthly personality with you to heaven, you're going to be just as difficult to please in heaven as you were on earth. Ah, somebody else is sitting by the right hand of Jesus. I thought that was my turn to do that. And the other thing is wasted days won't matter because you have an eternity of days in which you can waste while you're here, while you're alive each day is one day that you won't have to live over again. So here's an analogy for that. And that is, if you have a vessel, if the vessel has no limit, has infinite capacity, the vessel can never be filled. But your life, if it's a vessel with finite capacity, it can be filled, but it has to have the finite capacity in order to achieve a kind of fulfillment. So if somebody said magically, we can give you life forever, I think the quality of your life would subsequently decrease in dramatic fashion. My name is Lynn Flores, and I'm an art, literature, and anthropology podcaster for the creative process. I'm a rising junior attending Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. My major is in anthropology, which is not only a reflection of my passions and interests in the academic field, but a way of thinking that helps me better myself and inform my life, much like William Irvine and his practice of stoicism. In my discipline, I have the wonderful opportunity to examine other cultures, different from my own. What I've learned from this repeated practice is that the idea of the other 
other has a ton of misconceptions. We tend to put barriers and restrictions on ourselves from what's ingrained into us by our surrounding society. Humans often see country lines as huge chasms that divide us. When presented with a different subject that originated in a different culture than our own, people are sometimes confronted with thoughts of, I can never do that, or it's too different. However, these lines are just that lines drawn on paper. Really, the differences in humanity is more like an ever-shifting mosaic of languages, nationalities, and regions. We all share a planet. We are all humans, and we're more similar to each other than we think. This is why William Irvine's contributions are incredibly important. Through his work, he makes the Stoic philosophy accessible to all as people in the modern world. The word philosophy can be intimidating in itself. It conjures up images of scholarly individuals sitting in a grand library with stacks of books. It feels like a world for the elite and the special that can be impossible to enter. But William Irvine shows us that not only can we learn about these ideas, but also employ them into our everyday lives as well. He successfully brings the words of the original philosophers to our ears, or perhaps might even transport us to ancient Greece itself. Even by just participating in this interview, I feel as if I have learned new strategies of thinking that I can add to my life, like how to reflect on my mistakes in a healthy way and not to feel regret. Negative visualization is a powerful tool and a really good reminder to invest our time into what we truly value and thus attain more fulfillment for ourselves. And if this particular strategy doesn't work for you, Irvine reinforces how every stoic is different. There are so many ideas for people to find value in and implement them. Application to the modern world is one of the most important points William Irvine addresses. In our ever-shifting mosaic of a world, the values, problems, and solutions of societies change as time goes on. He writes about the stoic strategies in a way that can benefit us in the now. This, to me, is the hallmark of a brilliant scholar, someone who understands we have to shift and adapt our practices in order to lead the best lives we can in our current environment. William Irvine not only practices this concept, but is in touch with the concerns of our young generation and provides support through strategies to alleviate our anxiety and advice on inspiration for our aspirations. William Irvine is wonderfully engaged with his audience in a way that reflects his meticulous craftsmanship and careful examination in every step of his work. Irvine has no shortage of important messages and teachings that benefit everyone, and we can only learn these new ideas by exposure to different cultures, genres, and themes. Access to a variety of these allows us to gain insight into things we may never have learned or experienced. We are open to new images, works, and dreams that we never would have thought of. Those have the power to uplift, inspire, and create something new and more fulfilling in our everyday lives. I hope you find something in this podcast that is meaningful to you and can maybe help you treat your fellow humans with kindness and go into your world with purpose. I definitely am inspired by Irvine's words. So let's get back to the podcast. Yes, and it's often asked as well of those who pass early, bright calm to fame, whether it's better to burn brightly briefly. We don't want to expire too early, but that intensity is important. Another thing that you address, you called it the hedonism gap, the approach to not becoming so numb to our joy that it's no longer joy and how we can appreciate it fully. Yeah, so there's a thing called the hedonic treadmill where people, whatever they have, they want more. They work hard to get more and then when they get it do they live happily ever after no they might have a month where they say i'm living the dream at last or it might be a week or it might be a day or it might be an hour after they finally got the thing they worked so hard to get and then what happens they kind of sit down then their subconscious mind goes to work and it says you know to be really happy you need and then fill in the blank so I describe it as the gap theory of happiness. So why are we unhappy? Because what we have is not the same as what we want. What we want is a step higher than what we have. So what do we do? We do the obvious thing. We work really hard so what we have rises to the level of what we want, which is a fancy way of saying we get what we want. Unfortunately, as soon as we do that, a new gap opens. Mind, subconscious mind comes up with a new thing for us to want. We go through life that way. We're like a thirsty man caught on the desert, sees a mirage, and he thinks, oh, I got to get there. Gets to the mirage, realizes it's a mirage, and says, oh, no. Then looks off in the distance. Oh, over there, there's a mirage. And of course, he dies of thirst because that's what he's doing. So a lot of people have singularly unsatisfying lives because they're always chasing the thing that they're convinced is going to make them happy. Only every time they get there to say, ah, no, there could be more than this. So the Stoics, and actually I would say the Buddhists, so there were other people who came up with the same concept, and that is 
when what you have is lower on the scale than what you want, there's a second way to equalize those. And that is to want the thing you already have. And then you might say, well, how can I do that? Well, there's a way you can do that. Negative visualization. Uh, stop taking it for granted. Realize the situation you would be in if you didn't even have that. And it takes a lot of the sting out. And I seem to be in that stage of life, you know, where I know I'm supposed to at some level want a whole bunch of stuff. I could get it if I wanted it. It's just, I don't want that. You know, that would just be more stuff and I don't need more stuff. I've got enough. Took me several decades of living to get to that point, but I'm pretty satisfied with that. And your know, happiness is another interesting thing. I've been thinking about this lately. You know, people take aim at happiness. I don't know if you can actually do that. If you can have a recipe for attaining happiness, happiness is something that just happens as a byproduct of something else going on in your life. And that is having a day where you're experiencing equanimity. You don't have this abundance of negative emotions where you value the things you've already got, where you value you the relationships you've got, where you feel good inside your own body. You like being who you are. And I think if all that happens, then suddenly, you know, it'll dawn on me, gosh, I guess I'm happy, right? But other people say, ah, to be happy, I must do X. Like there's this magic connector there. I don't think that exists, but people sure try, you know, if only I had a private jet. I would at last. No, you wouldn't, because the guy down the street would have a better private jet, you know? And so the situation, it would never end. It's largely also one of personal disposition. It's not always one. There are just some people who are born. Actually, I'm quite lucky. I am generally born quite content. And I think that was a bit of a lottery. I don't know if I work towards it, but I think we have something in my family like that. Let me pause you there because before, when you were talking about my childhood, I was going to raise the concept of a congenital stoic. You know, we're wired to have certain personalities. So our personality is partly we can affect, but a big part is wired in. Part of it is chemical. If you want proof of that, get roaring drunk. Don't do this, people at home. Don't get roaring drunk. But if you do, you know, what'll happen is your emotions will take over. It affects your wiring. It affects the way your brain works. And that affects what you do and how you respond. So I'm convinced there are people for whom stoicism just fits like a glove. They slide right into it. I suspect I was one of those people. Why did it happen? I don't know. Was it something about the way I was raised? I don't know. Like you say, you won the lottery, you know, that you were born with a person who's easily satisfied. That's a blessing. That is such a blessing to be easily satisfied. And I know people who will tell me, but you shouldn't be satisfied. You shouldn't accept that. And what they're basically saying is, oh, you should go through life dissatisfied when satisfaction is within your grasp. That's crazy talk, right? And yet that's the consensus view. That's common sense. No, you shouldn't be happy with that. You should want more. So I seem to be a congenital stoic. So stoicism came naturally to me. I know there are people, so I get emails from people who say, you know, the stoicism, yeah, you just got all these fancy terms for stuff like negative visualization. But I figured this out on my own as a 10-year-old, you know, and it's right back and say, congratulations, you're a congenital stoic and you're a lucky person for that very reason. I would also say it's, it comes to somewhere down the lines to when you have a gap from your profession and what you feel that you should be doing. So once you have aligned your life with what you feel is your true self, then you don't want things. <laughs> We'd have to say I'm not easily satisfied. Just what I'm doing is close to what I want. So we should talk a little bit about the force, the civic virtues. Okay. So first of all, I made a living doing the thing I wanted to do. And it's 90% luck. I'd love to tell you. And it took a lot of work and planning on my part. And it takes some work and some planning. But what did I get? To, besides being a congenital stoic, I have an insatiable curiosity. I want to figure out how the world works. And I also am, I think, a born teacher. So once I figure out how the world works, I want to share what I've discovered with other people so they don't have to go through all the work to figure out what I have figured out. And then it just so happened that I was lucky enough to get a job where that's what they paid me to do. So I have two teaching components. Actually, I retired a few months back, so I no longer teach in the classroom, 
in one sense of the word, but by giving this podcast, of course, I'm teaching in a very broad virtual classroom, but I teach in my books too. Same thing. So it's a teaching activity, but it's as good as it gets. So uh, let's see, do I work five hours a week, 40 hours a week? No, I work every day of the year, every day. Yep. Including my birthday, including Christmas, you name it, because it isn't work, because it's what I want to be doing and I enjoy doing it. So it's really neat. And you might have to take some chances in your career choices to end up there. I know I came within an inch of not having any job in philosophy, right? Those jobs are very difficult to give. So I took some chances and ended up in a very good place. You know what? If I had ended up in a different kind of situation, maybe I wouldn't have thrived as much. I still probably would have landed on my feet and been fine. So when young people say, okay, I've got this dream. It's kind of crazy dream. But what do you think I should do? First, I give them disclaimers. Don't ask me. I just got lucky. I don't have deep theory, but you're young. Give it a shot. And you know what? You might have to do an about face later on, but you're only going to be young once. And this is the best time of your life to do that. And gosh, I hope I haven't ruined any number of lives by giving that advice. I don't think I have, but it's just wonderful. And I have retired friends who can't understand it. I say, well, I'm sort of semi-retired. I'm still writing. Well, why? Well, because I find it fulfilling. But you have to be careful what you say because you don't want like you're looking down on what they're doing because it's fine. That's what they do. I do what I do. And everybody can do it without interfering with each other. So how would you describe the adaptation of your personal beliefs and experiences in your Stoicism books for an audience? And what were some challenges of that adaptation? You mean the tweaks I did to Stoicism? Is that what you're interested in? Yeah. How did you transition from your beliefs and practices to writing a book for an audience? So for me, I read the Stoics and I thought, you know what? This has components. Number one, this can be taken as philosophy, but it can be taken as psychology. Number two, if you take it as psychology, it's got some components that can be isolated and can be described in a few sentences. And there's something you can do in response to them. And it just broke itself out. So when I wrote Guide to the Good Life, there were very, very few, probably could count them on one hand, published books aimed at a general audience about Stoicism. Now, you could find the Stoics themselves. You could find scholarly texts, but go back to the mid-2000s and maybe a half dozen books. Recently, I looked. Books on Stoicism for general audiences are now being published. Mostly, they're being self-published, but being published at a rate of more than one book per day. They're coming out. There's just a flood of them coming out. So it's a good time to be a stoic. Tell you what, I'm a teacher. I'm going to imagine I have a classroom in front of me and I'm going to tell them these techniques, going to show them how to use it and going to put it into a historical context so they know it just didn't pop out, but there's a history behind it. going to try to tie it in with what's happened in the last 2000 years because there's been a lot of psychology done that's confirmed what they said. Now, in the process of doing it, I made a few little changes in basic Stoic principle. And one of them is Epictetus describes the dichotomy of control. He says, well, there are things you can control and things you can't. And he had in mind, there are things you can control and things you have absolutely no control over. And it just right away, I see that that isn't the case because tennis, there are things you can control how you train. There are things you can't control what the other guy does. There are things in the middle there. So I added that middle and turned it into a trichotomy of control, three parts instead of two parts. There were Stoics who rebelled and said, no, you know, that's a mistake to do it that way. I'm convinced that if I could travel back in time and learn whatever language he spoke and talk to Epictetus, I could convince him of that. But the other thing is, even if the dichotomy is true, as a prescription on how to live, it's terrible prescription to give people because what are they going to do? They're going to say, well, there are things I can control and things I can't, and I shouldn't worry about things I can't control. Ah, well, then let's see. Can you control whether your boss fires you? No, I don't have absolute control over that. Well, then don't show up for work. Who cares? So it's terrible advice from that point of view because in life, the biggest thing that is going to affect the quality of your 
your life in the outcome of things and success and failure is what you do with things you have some but not complete control over. I mean, I would put above that things you have absolute control over, like choosing your values. You should be very careful. You should for sure give that thought. You should be very careful what values you pick. But other than that, there's just this middle ground. Yeah, about choosing what we can control that doesn't seem within our immediate orbit. And I know that you've written about the ethics of finance and, of course, as you mentioned, parenting. Can you just expand a little bit on that? Because I think some of the things that you also discussed was about not wanting things and capitalism sets us up for wanting things. That's how it's structured. So what are your thoughts about how we can reform our economic models to lead to greater sense of well-being and for a more fair and equitable society? Okay, so that's a big project. So let me nibble off some corners here to talk about. So, you know, under socialism and capitalism, there are going to be people wanting things. Capitalism will provide them with a ton more things than socialism would do. And by the way, the words we have to be careful is a Sweden a socialist country? No, because it's got a huge private enterprise component. But it's clear that capitalism gives you the goods in a way that socialism simply doesn't. In socialist countries, you're going to have people who feel frustrated because they can't get the things they want. And in capitalism, you're going to have people who are frustrated because they get the things they want, like the latest model iPhone. And then a year later, oh no, there's one that's even better than this. And you got to realize we're living in a dream world of our ancestors. If you could travel back in time and meet your great, great, great grandfather and show him your cell phone, you know, he would be amazed. It makes pictures. Wait a minute. It makes moving pictures. Wait a minute. It makes sound. Wait a minute. You can talk to somebody in Hong Kong and see their face as you do it, right? Oh, it adds math. So we're living in what they would regard as just this heavenly kind of thing. And yet we remain unsatisfied. So in either situation, you can detach the economics from the stoic component. So stoic would say, you know what, whatever economic system you're in, the trick is learn how to want and appreciate things you've already got. Lower your standards. In some socialist countries, like for instance, and again, some would say this isn't really socialism, but under Stalin in the Soviet Union, under Mao, the Great Famine was the result of this, where they had these theories and they thought we're going to use these theories to produce things and production collapsed. It's a lot harder to be happy with what you've got if you're starving to death. I guess it's somewhat possible, but it's a lot harder to do. But now in America, you look at people who are eating themselves to death and still unsatisfied. Well, here's another way to put it. So you had, as far as politics go, you had Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor, the most powerful man on planet Earth. You have Seneca, who was the equivalent of a billionaire. You had Musonius Rufus, who was a Stoic. But if you said to him, do you need to live in a palace? Well, no, not really. Do you need lots of fancy wine? No, not really. Where's a good place to live? Well, caves are pretty good. Caves work fine. So you find within Stoicism itself a wide range of views on what you need to have a good life. But the common thing is the external part is one component of that. But the huge thing is the internal component of that. Whether you appreciate, truly appreciate what you've already got, because guess what? Whatever you've got, you could lose. So whatever you've got, it could be worse. So one of the negative visualization exercises I use is just the realization that where I live, there aren't random gunshots at night that you could hear. It could be that way, but it isn't. And yet most people don't even pause for a second to consider that. And so one of these things that we consider as we think of the future, not with distress or anxiety, but is that moral ethical question of whether what we're leaving for the next generation and how we can get faster to what might seem utopia, but a circular economy and what levels of speaking to what Lynn mentioned about freedoms, what level of autonomy are we willing to sacrifice in order to ensure the, the life on this planet for future generations? Yeah. And again, I'm unfortunately as a stoic, I'm not supposed to be a pessimist, but the more I think about it, the more pessimistic I become because it seems like people are becoming less thoughtful. I'm trying to think of the most polite words I can come up with here. Less thoughtful. And I think the internet and in particular social media have played a huge role in that, that people fall down rabbit holes. And then once they're down, it's very difficult to get them back out again. It's like becoming a member of a cult. You just can't 
can't reason with them. And so you can tell people, okay, we've got a problem. So first step used to be, well, we've got a problem. And people would say, well, what's the evidence of that? And I guess global warming, you know, the first signs, it's now called climate change. It was called global warming. And that first became, to my memory, an issue. 1960, 1970, 1960 would have been very early. But, you know, people who questioned, is this really a problem? I was among the people who would have questioned that because there was some evidence. You know how science works. The evidence accumulates a bit at a time. Now, people don't realize that because they're only exposed in classes to settled science. That means when the debate is over, then they're taught that in a textbook. But there's a slow process that gets you there. But just for people who deny that it's a problem or even worse, who claim it's some kind of conspiracy. And then the question is, can you reason with them? Is there any evidence you can provide them with will change their mind? And in a growing number of cases, the answer seems to be no. It's just not clear whether there's a way out. So stoicism is relentlessly rational. So for stoic strategies to work, you have to be a rational person. You have to be able to think your way to conclusions. So sometimes I get email from people who tell me they're anxious and I always give them my disclaimer. Number one, I'm a doctor, but not the kind that cures people. I'm a philosophy doctor and that's probably the worst kind you could go to if you really need a help. But that there are people who are anxious because it's chemical and it's mental. And guess what? Stoicism can't help you. You're going to need to change the chemistry of your brain. And fortunately for you, they have some medications that I hear do that to a wonderful extent. So if people aren't rational, stoicism doesn't work. And the Stoics themselves would have been the first to admit that, that it relies on rationality. But my perception is that people are becoming increasingly less rational, less willing to look at evidence, more dismissive of evidence. And then there are people who say, well, that's what you say reality is. I think it's something different. Well, do you have evidence? No, I don't need evidence. It's just what I think. So that for me is a deeply frustrating state of affairs. Yeah. And so you talked about rabbit holes and I actually did a project about technology and rabbit holes in one of my anthropology classes. And what happens because people are staring at a screen in these echo chambers instead of real people. And this kind of ties back to the fact you mentioned how insults are a much bigger problem because of the internet, because people are staring at those screens and not other people when they say those things, they say things they never would have. So I was wondering, does any part of stoicism, the subconscious or the conscious mind, can that explain why people might partake in these phenomena? Yep. So, well, think about your evolutionary ancestors. So we're back 70,000 years ago on the savannas of Africa. You had a tribe that you dealt with. Typically, you were related to them, semi-related to them, connected with them in some way. And there might have been 20 of them. And you stuck together. How come? Because if you didn't, if you were a loner on the savannas of Africa, you were some lion lunch. You were in deep trouble. You needed social networks. So we became social creatures and we became actually hyper social creatures because your ability to reproduce depended on your social status within your tribe. And it could also be that whether you ate and what you ate depended on your status there. If you're a low person in the tribe, well, you know, the rest of us need to eat. And I guess what today there was not much left over. So go eat some leaves or do something like that. So we are wired to care very much about what other people think of us, our status among them. And the other thing is back in these tribes, what if you insulted somebody, if you put somebody down, they knew where you live. You know, that was just a few feet away. They knew, I mean, they could punch you in the face right there. They also knew, hey, I know when he falls asleep, maybe we'll have some kind of accident. So you learned, you learned civility. Well, the internet has stripped us of that because it gives you a cloak of anonymity, where you can say the meanest, cruelest things you can find, and the other person can't take revenge. And because we now lay, I don't, but a lot of people do lay out their lives, their innermost secrets on the internet. Then there are these people, these trolls who have no lives, who just fill their days trying to think, how can I make another human being miserable? Ooh, look at this. Ah, she has weight issues. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll tell her I saw that photo and she looks fat. 
that'll wreck her day. Will she come and punch me? No, she will never find me. So we're wired to be these hypersocial creatures and the internet lets us take advantage of that, right? We create this internet persona and we might even go into debt feeding it, right? So we want pictures of us in a really luxurious hotel. So we can't afford it, but we do it anyway because we need the pictures. And then there's somebody else out there who's taking that and using that as a weapon against us. And it's hard to know how that's all going to end. We're doing a really incredible social experiment on ourselves. I wonder how it'll turn out. I don't think it's going to have a happy ending. We've heard some solutions for it. Unfortunately, with the bots and everything, there's a lot of negativity. It's not even exactly always human, but we actually heard some interesting solutions, what they're doing. You might know that at the Yale Human Nature Lab about introducing the positive use of AI, positivity bots that can influence those social networks. Unfortunately, I think at the moment, we have a lot of negative bots and negative players as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm up for no bots, zero bots. And just so you would have to have an established identity in order to participate. I'm imagining there could be social networks that did that. I'm not sure how they would do that because I'm not a tech guy, but that's how it used to be. And you know, if you're going to deal with people on a daily basis, you're going to be civil. And the idea, you know, that I could go on at length, having some kind of relationship with something that turns out to be an AI bot, if I ever find out why that's going to be a disaster. So as you think about the future and education, and as you say, that kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what are some teachers who have been important to you beyond the Stoics in your immediate life? And what for you are the importance of the humanities? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Okay. So I'm on the constant lookout as a Stoic. I'm on the constant lookout for mentors. I refer to them as mentors and they're usually limited mentors. And these are people who know a whole bunch about some aspect of life. And when I am in their presence and realize, Ooh, this person knows a lot about this. I shut up and take notes is what I do and ask lots of questions because they've got this figured out. It's just simply the easiest, best way to learn stuff. So one thing is be on the lookout for mentors. So there are limited mentors. The idea would be a universal mentor, somebody who would be able to give you the answer to almost anything. I don't know if such a person exists. My Stoic Challenge book was dedicated to my mother-in-law who taught me a lot about courage and kindness. Now, she didn't know she was doing that. She didn't even know she was playing the mentor role, but I would be with her. I would watch her walk into a room and chat with complete strangers. And she also had health problems toward the end, didn't talk about them. I learned a lot. I learned a lot from watching that. I have now developed an ability to start conversations with people on elevators, something I could not have done, could not have imagined doing a decade or two ago. But now it just feels so fun. So this notion of finding mentors is a key thing. And I encourage your ego will try to prevent you from doing it because your ego tells you you are the best person that ever existed and Nobody has anything to teach you. You just have to strangle your ego some night, find it asleep and strangle it and get it out of your life. And then that's the first step toward a major improvement. As far as formal teachers go, I've had some teachers that made a big difference in my life just because they had it figured out. And usually there was a side thing on it. It sort of spilled over into life coaches. So I would divide things, teachers, mentors, coaches is a third class and a coach, a good coach, not only knows how to do something. So I'm a competitive rower, a sculler more precisely, not only knows how to do something, but knows how to motivate you. So there's this whole background thing going on, guide to the good life was dedicated to the person who was my rowing coach. And again, he didn't know it at the time, but I picked him out. Ooh, here's mentor material and just learned a lot about him. Not just about rowing, but it's interesting the way it spills over into life. To be a teacher, a good teacher requires two things. You got to know a lot about something. You got to know your subject. And secondly, you got to be able to communicate what you know to other people. And it's easy for somebody to have one of those abilities, but not the other, in which case they're going to be an ineffective effective teacher. Same is true of coaches. You know, the language thing, they'll tell you to do something and to them, they know perfectly well what they're trying to tell you, except you're hearing the words in a different way. I knew from my time in the classroom that when we would get to an important concept, I would have like five different ways to say it. So I would say it 
what I thought was the obvious way. And I'd say, okay, everybody on top of this. And a hand would go up. No, I don't understand. I would say it in the second way, you know, and by the third or fourth way, they'd say, oh, I get you. Why didn't you say that to begin with? And the answer is because different people are going to hear things differently. And that's part of what you factor in. When I write my books, I spend a huge amount of time trying to write sentences that nobody anywhere could possibly misunderstand, try to be so clear and realize even then there are going to be cases where somebody just misunderstands. But I did my best and that's all a stoic can do. Exactly. And when you have that one-on-one, -on -one, you can read how yep. they take into information. I think yep. it's almost the most important thing to find out first. To some people, they're all about language, visual, sound, but you have that intuition. And the repetition is important, as you say, too, because we don't always get it on the first time. Right. And that goes away, by the way, if you teach uh, virtually online, you can't see. So I gave my last two semesters were online and I would tell jokes and there would be no response. And I'm thinking, huh, did they not get it? Did they get it and think it wasn't a good joke? But it's like it was missing. And also you can read faces and whether they're getting it or not, but you're deprived of that cue. If it's a big class and some of the screens are off, you have no idea. You're shouting into the dark and wondering, does anybody hear me? But sometimes they pick it up later. So we don't always know immediately how. Yep, no, it's true. Well, you test them on it and then you find out, but it's such an indirect way to do it. Because if you knew it right, then you could say it a different way, right? Or you could say, okay, well, ask me a question. Tell me what it is, right? And then you would realize. Thank you for your insights into teaching, into stoicism. You're a mentor for us through your books and through this conversation. Thank you, William Irvine, for helping illuminate the beliefs, virtues, and strategies of the Stoics and presenting their ideas so that we might lead lives of meaning, purpose, self-mastery, and contribute to the greater good. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Oh, you're welcome. And I've enjoyed this chat very much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lynn Flores with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Lynn Flores. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbar. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We've hoped you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.